Our reading this morning is taken from John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, 
but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, as always, we need your help. We need you to open the eyes of our hearts that we would behold Jesus, that we would see him more clearly and love him with all that we are. Amen. Should have gone to Specsavers. I take it most of, us, most of us will have seen those adverts on TV. You should have gone to Specsavers for the opticians. Uh, the one I saw most recently, uh, I think it's actually quite an old one, but I only saw it for the first time. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a vet, and uh, he's got his stethoscope on, and there's a cat on the operating table. And he's, lis- he's listening for the cat's heartbeat. Oh, hang on. Is there, any, is there any heartbeat? He checks himself. Yeah, the stethoscope's working. Nurse, there's a cat here with no pulse. Quick, adrenaline and an IV line. Then the nurse kind of awkwardly walks in, picks up her furry hat off the operating table, goes home as the vet looks round and sees the actual cat on the counter behind him. You should have gone to Specsavers. Is the punchline, and I take it. I take it. Most of us have, have seen all types of those Specsavers adverts. They're great. They're great adverts. I find them very funny. The whole the whole ruse behind them, of course, is that the person who should have gone to Specsavers is a bit of an idiot. Everybody else sees clearly, but they don't. Everybody else is is laughing at them. Everybody else is slightly embarrassed by their awkwardness. Everybody else sees clearly and the issue of seeing clearly the issue of sight is what dominates this passage here i think it raises the question for us i don't know i don't know if have you ever have you ever have you ever felt spiritually speaking as a christian or oh, perhaps i should go to spec savers as a christian have you ever wondered perhaps every else, the world out there sees things clearly and they're laughing at me. Do you remember what we looked at last week? Last week we, we talked about the fact that Jesus going to his death was the only way for us to have life. Jesus going to his death was the only way for, for God's wrath at our sin to be turned aside. Who believes that anymore? Are we, are we, as Christians, those who need to go to spiritual spec savers, if you like, to start seeing clearly? Terms like wrath and sin and judgment and eternal life. Who believes in those anymore? The, the lovely couple down your street don't, don't believe in things like that. The features writers in the new newspapers we read don't believe in things like that. The softly spoken liberal bishop on Thought for the Day on Radio 4 doesn't believe in things like that. 
as a society, of course, we've matured now, haven't we? To talk about things like eternal life, sin, wrath, holiness, that is automatically to label people. That is automatically to put distance between us and others. How can we ever hope to be an inclusive society if we as Christians carry on like that? Doesn't everybody else see that apart from us? Are Christians those who have sort of cataracts on their eyes from centuries of medieval superstition and oppressive moral beliefs? Do Christians need to go to spec savers and put on a pair of modern scientific humanistic glasses? Does everybody else out there see clearly and are they just laughing at us? So the passage we're looking at this morning is dominated by, by themes and metaphors for sight and for light and for darkness. Just have a turn, open back to page 1080 if you closed your Bibles. Ideas of sight and light and darkness run through this passage. Have a look down verse 21. What's the opening question from these Greeks? Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And then verse 35, when Jesus, he doesn't really answer them, but his, his command to them, verse 35, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Then there's more. Skip over to verse 40. This quote from Isaiah is light. Uh, sorry, it's, it's talk about blinding and eyes and seeing. Halfway through, they can't see with their eyes. It's all about sight. Light and darkness. Then verse 45. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. This passage is all about seeing. It runs through the whole passage. And the question it raises and answers is, well, which group of people sees Jesus clearly? Is it the group of people who look at Jesus on the cross and go, nah, that's just, that's just, that's nothing. That's nothing but a, a relic of a passé belief system. Are, are they the people who see Jesus clearly? Or is it people who look at the cross and see there a saviour so glorious that he is worth devoting the whole of your life to? Who is seeing clearly? Let's have a look at what this passage has to say. Uh, The outline is on your service sheet. It's also going to appear behind me up here. Now, first point, verses, verses 20 to 36. The hour has come for us to see Jesus' glory. The hour has come for us to see Jesus' glory. See, look how Jesus, verse 23, look how Jesus answers those who say, we want to see you. It's a slightly enigmatic answer. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you remember way back when we looked at the rest of John, this this idea of the hour has been kind of rippling away all through John's Gospel. Jesus has been talking about his hour since chapter 2, but each time this hour has come up, it's always been a future event. It's always been clear that his hour has not yet come, but now, finally, it has. In chapter 2, the hour has not yet come. 
In chapter 7, when when Jesus was teaching and people wanted to arrest him, they didn't because his hour had not yet come. Same in chapter 8, people wanted to arrest him. His hour had not yet come, but now, verse 23, the hour has come. Now, says Jesus, my hour has come. Now, the hour where people will lay hands on me. Now, the hour where I will go willingly to my death has come. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for my death, says Jesus, and in that death, that is where my glory will be seen most clearly. Same again, same idea, verse 27. Jesus says, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In Jesus' death, in this hour, his glory is going to be seen most clearly. Now remember where we are. Remember where we are in the story. We said, we said right at the beginning, verse 20, Greeks have come up to worship at the festival. What is that festival? If you're here last week, you remember the festival is the Passover. Passover, that time of year when the Jewish people looked back to God's rescue of them from Egypt. They looked back to that time where all through the, the people um, in slavery in Egypt, lambs were slain and the blood was painted on the doorposts of the Jewish people's houses. And that special night, that wondrous night when God rescued his people from Israel, when the angel of death passed over all the houses on which was painted that blood. And again, if you were here last week, you remember we said, this Passover, this Passover festival is going to be different. This Passover festival is going to be special. This Passover festival, the lamb who is going to be slain to avert God's wrath at sin is going to be Jesus himself. This Passover, God will finally and gloriously rescue his people from slavery to sin and death and bring them out into eternal life. This Passover, Jesus' death is going to bring life. Verse 24. Verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This year, in the same way that a, that a seed, sort of dead as it were, falls to the ground, has to fall to the ground before life springs up. So Jesus is going to go to his death. That life might abound and flourish for all who put their trust in him. And it is in this hour of Jesus' death that we see his glory most clearly. Down again, verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And there's a play on words here. Jesus says, When I am lifted up. But have a look down. Look at at that little... um, the little F, the little pointing you to your footnote there. Down at the bottom. The Greek for lifted up also means exalted. So Jesus is saying, I, when I'm lifted up, and he, in one sense, he's just talking spatially. He's talking about the physical act or the fact that he is going to be lifted up and, and hung on a cross and die. 
But also the play on words says, Jesus says, well, I, when I'm lifted up, when I am exalted, when in the hour of my death you, you see my glory. Jesus says, in that hour of my death, you will see me truly as the good shepherd who is laying down his life for his sheep. In the hour of my death, you will see me truly as the bread of life who, who is broken to give sustenance, to give life to his people. In the hour of my death, you will see me as the one sent from the Father, doing the Father's will, being obedient to him. In the hour of Jesus' death, we see his glory most clearly. And therefore, in the hour of Jesus' death, we see Jesus most clearly. And the question that is posed by this, I guess, is, are you, are you seeing clearly? When you look at the cross, have you begun to see a saviour so glorious that he is worth giving your whole life to? Because John's Gospel would say, if you have, then you can give great thanks to God. If you look at the cross and you see something glorious, then give thanks because God in his unmerited mercy to you has enabled you to see what the cross really is about. If you look at Jesus' death and you see something glorious, you do not need to go to Specsavers. You are seeing clearly. Question, of course... Remains, though, doesn't it? If to look at Jesus' death and to see glory is to see clearly, why is it that millions, billions, most of those around us don't see any glory in Jesus' death? Why, why are those who love Jesus' death in the minority? And the surprise, the shock, and we'll see the comfort of this passage is that actually it is, it is no surprise to God that there are many, a multitude, who would prefer to walk in darkness rather than see Jesus' glory clearly. So if our first point is that the hour has come for us to see Jesus' glory, the second point as we go on in the passage is the blindness of many is no surprise to God. The blindness of many is no surprise to God. And as we move into um, <clears throat> verses 37, I will actually concentrate, verses 37 to 43, we, it marks a sort of a transition in the, in the story, in the flow of the narrative. Look how verse 36 ends. Look down at verse 36. Top of that column. When Jesus had finished speaking, he left them and hid himself from them. So it marks, a, it marks a transition. We move from the flow of the story into really, I guess, a sort of a summary section in John's Gospel. So verses uh, 37 to 43, they kind of are a, a summary or a progress report of how Jesus' ministry is going. And then verses 44 to the end, uh, kind of a, a montage, a highlight reel of Jesus' teaching. So how is it going? How is Jesus' ministry of bringing life going? Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. In that sense, Jesus' ministry is well, it's going badly. 
This is not revival. But is it a surprise to God? Is God kind of wringing his hands, desperate about Jesus' plummeting poll numbers? Is, is God, God and the apostles going to kind of have a closed-door meeting and say, look, what can we do about Jesus' image? No, it's a, it's a complete, it's, it's completely within God's plan. It was always, it was always going to be like this. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. John says this is exactly how it was always going to happen. 700 years prior to this, the prophet Isaiah was writing about Jesus. He was writing about someone who would die to absorb God's, God's wrath instead of the people. He was writing about someone who, as, as he absorbed God's wrath, he would also be exalted. And back when Isaiah was writing, 700 years previously, he posed these two rhetorical questions. Look there, verse 38. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the point is that the answer to those questions is the same here, now that Jesus is on the scene, as it was back in Isaiah's day. Lord, who has believed our message? Hardly anyone. To whom has the arm, is the sort of rescuing strength of the Lord, been revealed? It's you, says Isaiah. It's you. It's precisely you people who have not believed, who have seen all of God's wonder. So the, the unbelief in Isaiah's day as he prophesied about Jesus, the unbelief in Jesus' day as he performed many signs, the unbelief in our day, is no surprise to God. And, and I think, I hope I can put this correctly, for those of us who, who, who do see the cross clearly, who do see its glory, it is a comfort that the unbelief of others is no surprise to God. It is a comfort that the blindness in our families, in our offices, amongst our friends is no surprise to God. But to others, of course, this kind of teaching is disconcerting. It's disconcerting to, yes, anyone here this morning who, who looks at the cross and says, I just don't get what all the fuss is about. Why, why do I need the cross? Why do we need talk of holiness and sin and wrath and eternal life? Or we're, we're enlightened now. This kind of teaching is a challenge because it, it begs the question, well, are you? Are you enlightened or, or are you in darkness? And is that part of God's plan? It's shocking. It's not what we're used to hearing in Jesus' teaching. But actually the passage gets even more shocking than that, uh, I have to say. Look, look how it continues, verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. 
So what is, what is the reason that many don't believe in Jesus? Is it because they've looked carefully at the scientific and the historical evidence and come to an objective conclusion? No. Because they have been enlightened by the progress of society and morality? No. Because they have seen the truth that in a pluralistic society, your truth is yours and my truth is mine? No. Verse 40, the reason people could not believe is he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And don't miss it. The he there is God. It does say that. God has deliberately caused this blindness and hardened people's hearts so that they can neither, as verse 40 carries on, see, understand, or turn and repent. Look, this, this is undoubtedly one of the hardest teachings in all of Scripture. God's, God's sovereignty doesn't, doesn't stop at the entrance to our hearts as it were. God's control over everything extends even to our decision to follow him. It's a hard, it's a hard teaching, but that is the consistent teaching of all of Scripture. God's sovereignty extends even to our decision whether or not we will follow him. But, and... At the same time, that always goes hand in hand with the fact that we have free will to choose what we want to do. And we are culpable for the decisions we make. We also make our own decisions. So have a look again at verse 42. Have a look down at verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. They make a real choice. God's sovereignty and our choosing exist side by side, always in Scripture. Similarly, last week, if you remember, Caiaphas and all the others, all the other bigwigs decided to put Jesus to death because... They wanted to maintain their privileged position in society. Again, a real choice. The whole way through the Bible, there is this teaching. God is sovereign over our decision whether to follow Jesus or not. We really decide whether to follow him or not and are held accountable for that decision. Phil, in, uh, in the evening, put it very helpfully once. He said, you know, imagine uh, you've got a massive bridge. On one side of the bridge is uh, unbelief in Jesus. On the other side of the bridge is following Jesus. How do, how do you get from one side to the other? Well, across this massive suspension bridge, which has two pillars, two pillars holding equal weight, God's sovereignty and our choosing. <laughs> That's gonna, I'm, I, that may well uh, bring up many questions. <laughs> Dave at the back at the sound desk is going, What? Yeah, it raises questions. Please, please do speak to me about it afterwards. But back to the text here. John wants us to be clear. The blindness of many is no surprise to God. You see, indeed, as we look at the cross, God will either use it to make us see more and more and more clearly, or he will use it to make us more blind. 
So look, skip back up to verse 31. Back over. Look at verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, that is Satan, will be driven out. See, in a few chapters' time, Pilate, the Roman governor, Herod, the Jewish king, and the people generally will all in that sense, be passing judgment on Jesus. They will be sending him or condemning him to death. Satan's murderous plan will have seemed to have come to fruition. The reality, of course, though, is that the cross passes judgment on them. The cross passes judgment on us. The cross exposes the nature of human hearts that care more about this world and what other people think of us than the world to come and what God thinks about us. The cross simultaneously lets some people see Jesus in crystal clear HD. But it also confirms and is caused by the blindness of others. And God is not surprised by this. It comes as no shock to God. Indeed, as that quote from Isaiah implies, God causes this. Because I said before, I, I, we are on hallowed ground here. We, we, can, we should never, we must never talk about these things without deep, deep reverence and humility. But if we are Christians here this morning who, who look out at the unbelief around us and think, well, maybe I, maybe I should go to Specsavers. Maybe, maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. This is comforting. You see, that we are in the minority does not imply that we are not seeing things clearly. It does not imply that we are wrong to believe what we believe. It does not imply that we need to abandon or update our beliefs to get a nice new sort of pair of modern rationalistic glasses. The unbelief around us is not a sign of God's failure. It is not a sign of God's impotence. It is not a sign of God's irrelevance. Unbelief is no surprise to God. And that gives us confidence to keep believing what we do, to keep seeing clearly. In fact, it motivates us, of course, to ask God to help us to see more and more clearly. Do we as Christians need to go to Specsavers? No. Quite the opposite. It is those around us who do not see clearly. And yet, of course, we feel the temptation to join them. We feel the temptation to kind of update our beliefs. But to do so would be, would be as awful as to, to deliberately blind ourselves. Instead, we humbly, we confidently, we prayerfully point any who don't see Jesus clearly to him. But as we finish, of course, that leaves the obvious question. Where does that leave any here this morning who, who would say, well, I don't see any glory in the cross. I don't see any glory in a saviour who dies for me. Well, our final point, and I think the implication for any in that position would be walk towards the light while you can. Walk towards the light while you can. Just but you could, you could e- if you if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, you could easily hear a sermon like this and respond in or just resignation or, or anger even. Well, okay, I don't see clearly. Well, stuff God. 
why should I bother? If he's the one who's, who's blinding me, stuff him, I don't care. But if you feel like that, I would, I would urge you to, to take a look at the kind of saviour who is speaking here. Because if it was the end of the story that, okay, well, you don't see clearly that's, that's the end. Why would, this, why would this book ever have been written? Why would God have ordained the circumstances of your life to bring you here this morning? See, the very fact that you're here this morning, it seems to me to be evidence that God wants you to see the light of glory in the cross. God doesn't want your journey with Jesus, as it were, to end with verse 36 and Jesus hiding himself away from you. I don't know if you remember, two weeks ago we said that these two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, mark a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From his public ministry, chapters 1 to 10, and then, and then his, his um, private teaching to his disciples, verses, uh, chapters 13 onwards. And at this point in the, in the story, Jesus is saying, will you step inside? Will you step inside the the room that he is going to take his disciples to and and teach them more and more about himself. If you see even the smallest crack this morning, even the the smallest shaft of of glorious light emanating from the cross, Jesus would say, will you walk towards that light while you can? You're not blind. There There is hope that you will yet see. Verse 44. Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, Jesus is is crying out to you. Will you walk towards that light? There's there's, there's no desperation. There's no begging in Jesus' voice. He's not like a kid trying to cajole their mother into doing something. You have a real choice to make. God is sovereign over that choice. There is no begging from Jesus, but there is passion. There is love. There is concern that all here this morning would walk in the light of glory, would walk in the light of the cross. He cries out to you and says, will you walk towards the light? Will you keep reading the Bible? Will you perhaps meet, I don't know, read the Bible with with a friend who brought you here this morning? Come to one of the courses we put on here for people looking into Christian things. Will Will you pray that you will see the light? See, God would rather you see than remain in darkness. What did Jesus say way back in chapter 8? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who look at the cross and see something there glorious, but yet who doubt our convictions as we live in a society that thinks nothing of you or your son. Please would this passage fill us with confidence that we are the ones seeing clearly. 
and that unbelief is not a mark of your, your impotence or your irrelevance. Father, for those who, who know that, that they don't see anything glorious in the cross, Father, please would they hear your cry to walk in the light. Please, Father, would they walk towards that light. Father, please would you bring them into the light. Amen.